Our passage this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 2. Pride, selfishness, conceit. Unfortunately, these are the attitudes that are part and parcel of the world that we all live in. The problem with each of these attitudes is that they can create a, a kind of toxic relational culture that is destructive and volatile. Any organization or set of relationships that are full of prideful and conceited people will ultimately end up devouring itself, preying on itself, eating itself. A close look at church history will prove that pride and conceit are not just attitudes that are part and parcel of the world. They're actually part of the community of Christians. Now, some of the stories of church history are more funny than others, but none of them are any less sad and sobering. One funny yet sobering story is from many years ago, a church in Dallas where a church split was the result of an elder not getting a large enough portion of meat than the child he was sitting next to at their annual church dinner. So watch out at next year's summer celebration. You make sure you give the elders big enough food on their plate. And these kind of stories are absurd. And the stuff that belongs in Saturday Night Live, to be honest. Why do these scenarios, though, exist within the church? Well, we're riddled with a heart problem. We're riddled with a heart problem of pride and conceit and that lurks and grows in the mud of our sinful human condition. And as comical as those stories may be, the reality is, it is a very sad story when pride and conceit result in division in the church. Unless God breaks in and changes our attitudes and our behaviors, we too will end up devouring one another 
from the inside out. And so I wonder about you and I wonder about me. Are we at odds with each other? Are you at odds with another brother or sister at college church or another brother or sister in the community that is a Christian? How about your spouse? How about your children? Maybe the drive to church this morning for you and your car was full of tension and strife and division. And you're sitting here this morning thinking, why am I even in church? I don't belong here. Although I don't know your particular situation and what you may be dealing with today, what I do know is it becomes pretty clear in Philippians chapter 2 that Paul is writing to a congregation that had some relational issues that needed to be sorted out. We know from chapter 4 that there was some kind of problem between two women in the church. You can look over at chapter 4, verse 2. He says there, I entreat Judea and Synthache to agree in the Lord. And so maybe it's possible that when Paul's writing chapter 2, he has these two women in mind. Or maybe he's got some other things and issues that he knows is going on in that church that need to be corrected. Either way, it's pretty evident that there was some kind of corrupt relational culture that had developed within the seemingly healthy church. And so Paul here provides kind of uh, an accurate biblical diagnosis of their problems, but also the biblical framework for creating a culture that is transformed and being transformed by the gospel. In other words, he's explaining to them what a gospel-centered community is supposed to look like. What elements of the gospel story are supposed to be alive and active among us that shape how we live together? Well, the verses we're spending the majority of our time are the ones that Tommy just read for us in chapter 2, 1 to 11. But in order to fully understand them, we kind of need to back up just a little bit and put them in the context of the letter and the flow of Paul's processing and his thinking. So look up at chapter 1, verse 27. There in 127... Paul gives the very first command of the letter. And that command in 27 acts as kind of this umbrella command, which now he's going to flesh out in particular ways, all the way down to verse 18 of chapter 2. So in 127, he writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. There's two things I want us to notice. First, notice the plural nature of the command. It's not just sitting down with one or two individuals in the church, having coffee or just one conversation. He is, in fact, addressing the entire community of believers. He's addressing what their life together should look like. Second thing I want you to notice is that in the original language, the verb in this communal command literally means to behave as citizens. You may have a little footnote at the bottom of your Bible that, that references this. The English under-translates the command. The precise flavor of it is, to, is similar to this. Let your life as citizens of heaven be worthy of the gospel. Now in the command, Paul intentionally uses the word citizen to tap into the Philippians' pride in being a Roman colony. The city of Philippi was a colony of Rome in Macedonia. And from Acts 16 at 12, we learn that it was one of the leading cities in the region. 
The people of Philippi were intensely proud of their heritage and of the privileges of being this great Roman outpost. And so no doubt some of the Christians that were there probably shared in this feeling about their status as Roman citizens. And so in this command here, Paul doesn't discredit that or condemn that attitude. But instead what he does is he uses that attitude to enforce a lesson of their new allegiance. As Christians, their ultimate allegiance is no longer to Rome and to Lord Caesar. They now have a new allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so just like being a Roman citizen in a a Roman city had its benefits, privileges, and responsibilities, so too they are called to not just accept the benefits of the gospel of forgiveness of sins and new life, but they're also called to accept the responsibilities that come with the gospel. And that is to shape their life together communally after the pattern that's laid down in the gospel. It should have an impact on them. Gospel-centered community is the command and is a requirement for all whose true citizenship is in heaven. Now, in chapter 1, 28 to 30, Paul makes reference to some kind of external dangers that were threatening this kind of community. Let's read verse 27 to 28. Let me read them for you. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ... So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And so Paul here is making reference to external forces that are going to keep them from striving side by side for the gospel. So he says, you cannot be frightened by them. You must stand firm. They must hang tough in the midst of these external pressures that threaten a gospel-centered community. But that's not all. Because beginning in chapter 2, we also see that there are some kind of internal threats inside of the church that are making the gospel-centered community Difficult to establish. If they're going to live as citizens of heaven on earth, if they're going to be this outpost of the gospel in Macedonia, they must not allow themselves to be undone from external pressures and opponents or the internal pressures that they're facing. And so here we have this seemingly very healthy church whom Paul, obviously through Philippians, has this deep affection and love for, and yet there remains the very high likelihood that there are some kind of internal relational problems that needed to be corrected. I suppose the same thing could be said of us. College Church, from all outward appearances, is a very healthy church. You look good this morning. We have a lot of great ministries going on here at College Church throughout the year and this summer. And we could easily identify with this healthy church in Philippi. And yet I wonder, I wonder if we are facing some of the same internal threats that they did. 
I've been wrestling with kind of a a disturbing and nagging question this week as I've been preparing. And and the question is this. Is the relational culture at College Church such that our ability to strive for the gospel locally and stand against any external opponents that we have to the gospel, is our ability to strive for those things being worn down? Is it being diminished because of some kind of internal relational problems that are lurking below the surface? How can we fight for the growth of the gospel for fighting against each other? I'm convinced we need chapter 2, 1 to 11, more than we think. We can't just kind of gloss over it because we might be familiar with some of it. You see, the command in 127 is for us as well. Gospel-centered community is a requirement for us. And so what he does here in chapter 2 is he develops this idea, puts kind of flesh on that idea in two particular ways. In verses 1 to 5, we see that gospel-centered community requires unity and humility. And then in verses 6 to 11, we see that gospel-centered community is modeled after Jesus. So let's take those things in order this morning. First, gospel-centered community requires unity and humility. Look at verse 1 with me. In verse 1, Paul reminds them of the realities of the gospel. And he does so kind of by like rewinding their spiritual DVRs, if you will, and replays for them all that they experienced when they came to Christ. The if of sentence of verse 1 in that sentence really should be understood as sense. So since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, since there is participation in the Spirit, since there is affection and sympathy, these are the realities of the gospel that they experienced and that they do experience in Christ. And so he's replaying these things for them on their video screen of their mind and saying, these are the things that should motivate you to humility and unity with one another. In verse 2, then, he hits on unity. And he writes, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So the unity that he's hitting at here is a, a dynamic unity of mind. Note that the thought begins with the words, the same mind, and ends with the words, the mind of one mind. And it's also repeated in 127 when he writes, with one mind, This same-mindedness that he's talking about is kind of this this gritty kind of focus on one shared common purpose together. And that purpose is the growth of the gospel in them and around them. Since they have fellowship in the realities of verse 1, their unifying purpose should be the growth of that gospel. The unity that he has in mind here is not kind of a a mindless unity where they all become kind of mini-me's of each other, clones of one another, wearing the same clothes, talking with the same intonations, having the same nonverbal robotic communications, liking the same kind of music or food or hairstyles. Unity doesn't equal conformity in personality or preferences. Instead, the unity that Paul has in mind is unity of purpose, of goal, direction together, which is the growth of the gospel. 
that unifying purpose goes much broader and much deeper than any kind of personal preferences that they could have or that we could have. And because it's much broader and deeper, it therefore necessitates and allows for freedom in personal preferences and suspends judgment on each other in those things which we have freedom in Christ as long as it doesn't conflict with the gospel message or stunt its growth. Now, it takes a ton of wisdom to weed through those things in community. What does it look like for us to have discernment about those things which may or may not help us get after that unifying purpose or actually stunt that unifying purpose? But the point is we have massive freedom in Christ as long as we're centered on this common goal. Unfortunately, too often the body of Christ becomes divided over secondary issues. Larry Osborne, in his book titled Unity Factor, says this. He says that the fiercest battles in our churches are seldom fought over theology. More often, he goes on to say that they are fought over change, sometimes even the slightest change. They can be fought over personalities, over music preferences, over leadership style, over Robert's rules of orders, and over our injured feelings. And so I wondered this morning, is there a secondary issue in the life of the church that you are fighting for? In some way, are you making kind of a peripheral issue, a core issue, bringing it right to the middle? If so, you may be part of an internal threat to our ability to fight for the gospel together. And again, it takes a ton of wisdom to weed through those things and what it means for us to be unified in that purpose and goal. But Paul knows that that unity of mind can only come through humility. And that's what he turns his attention to in verses 3 and 4. Let's look at 3 and 4. He writes this, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. The only way that unity can be a reality in our relationships is through humility. Humility is the rule for all Christian relationships. It's true in our homes. It's true in our workplaces. It's true with our friendships. And it's true with our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we desire to have unity of purpose around that common goal, then humility is the rule that we must all live by together. It was the guiding principle that Paul explains to the Philippian church. One commentator explains it this way. He says, instead of pursuing their own prestige, that strangely addictive and debasing cocktail of vanity and public opinion, the Philippians are called to humility which agrees to treat and think of others preferentially. The biblical view of humility is not kind of this pathetic lack of self-esteem, but rather humility is a mark of moral strength and integrity in our relationships. It involves kind of an, an unordained acknowledgement of our creaturely inadequacies. A few years ago, my family and I were reading through Philippians for our kind of devotional time as a family. 
And my wife and I, as you may know, have four very young children. And so getting all six of us to sit down uh, for any length of time is a challenge, especially reading the Bible. And so when we sit down and read the Bible, we have to be very creative and make the ideas and themes of the Bible sticky so that they stay with them. So when we came to Philippians chapter 2, we adopted what we call the Philippians 2 attitude. We still use that today in our home when someone is being selfish and, and not being very kind to someone else. We say, you know, remember the Philippians 2 attitude. It's a way for us to remind ourselves that we want the gospel to shape our relationships with one another. And we don't do it perfectly. There are six ugly sinners in our home. But we're striving for this. Call it whatever you may. But if the Philippian church was going to be unified in purpose, then their relational culture together must be full of humility as they elevate each other's interests above their own and consider others more significant than themselves. Those attitudes are are kind of the the bedrock realities for any gospel-centered community. They're supremely self-giving and supremely self-sacrificing, but without them, any relationship is on unsteady ground. It's precisely what our godly mothers and fathers did for us. It's what we as parents are called to do for our children. There's no such thing as an effective parent who is totally into himself or herself. It's the kind of attitude that should exist in our marriages as we live generously for the other person. Our friendships only flourish and grow when they are focused on the other. And our relationships within this church must be marked by these attitudes. Some of the greatest threats to developing this gospel-centered community at College Church is our pride and division. No matter what the issues are that we could could have a, a fight over together, at the bottom of them... Paul diagnoses it as pride, which results in division. We can't fight for the gospel for fighting against each other. On the contrary, the greatest promoters of gospel-centered community, the greatest promoters of our gospel witness in this community in Wheaton and broader is our unity and humility towards one another. We express that as we defer to one another in secondary issues and put each other's interest above our own. If you notice in verse 2, Paul says, Complete my joy by living this way. Our greatest joy in life is not always by getting what we want. Paul says here his greatest joy was that these believers would be unified in purpose. Our greatest joys in life are never obtained through selfish living but obtained through self-giving to one another. And so verses 1 to 5, gospel-centered community requires unity and humility. And the problem is that we can't do it. No matter how hard you and I try to live out the Philippians 2 attitude, we inevitably fail. We fail because of the pride that's inside of us, It's part of the fallen human condition. And so the solution isn't say, this command is impossible. I don't have to obey it. I can just dismiss it because I can't do it. The solution is to look to Jesus who perfectly lived out these attitudes. 
And that's exactly what Paul turns our attention to in verses 6 to 11. So in 6, 1 to 11, we see that gospel-centered community is modeled after Jesus. And in these verses here, what we see is the humility and exaltation of Jesus clearly on display. We could say it's a, a hero to a zero to a, a superhero story. In verses 6 to 8, we see the humility of Jesus in three kind of increasingly intense downward spirals of humility. So let's look at the humility of Jesus. The first downward spiral is seen in verse 6, where Jesus' humility is seen explicitly in heaven. Paul writes, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Christ existed in the majestic form of God from all eternity, and he shared in the glory of God. Jesus alluded to this in the upper room on the eve of his death when he prays this. This is from John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Calvin comments that the form of God means here his majesty. For as a man is known by the appearance of his form, so the majesty which shines forth in God is his figure. At the same time, the form of God does not simply refer to his external appearance, but to his being. And so in Hebrews 1, we read this, that he, referring to Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus isn't just a mere reflector of God's glory. He is the glory of God. The glory that Christ had before the world may seem unreal to us. It may seem strange to our unreflective and kind of distracted souls. But the truth behind these words is is beyond our comprehension. And so our challenge is to allow our minds to dwell on the incomprehensible realities of the person of Jesus and then allow our lives to be shaped by that. The awe-inspiring wonder of verse 6, though, increases as we see the humility of Jesus in heaven. He was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The idea here is that Jesus didn't hold on to his equality with God as something to use for his own advantage. Here we need to remember verses 3 and 4. You see, the pre-incarnate Christ is nothing like people who fight as rivals as they seek their own interests. Rather, what it means is that in in viewing his equality with God as something not to keep but to use for his own advantage is that he saw his equality with God as that which uniquely qualified him for this humble descent to save people. He was the only one qualified to do it because he is God. No one else qualified to fulfill that task. And so that's Jesus' humility in heaven, not holding on to it, but giving it up. The second downward spiral then is seen in verse 7, where Jesus' humility in the incarnation is described. Paul writes, But made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
The phrase made himself nothing gives the proper metaphorical sense of the Greek, which reads, but emptied himself. In the recent past, liberal theologians have taken the meaning of this text and developed what is known as the kenosis theory. The kenosis theory, these people thought that Christ emptied himself and divested himself of his divine attributes and he ceased to be God. Today, that theory is discredited and dismissed by most scholars due to how the verb to empty is used in the whole New Testament. Added to that, though, is that the emptying here in verse 7 is carefully defined by what comes immediately after it. So look at verse 7. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. That is what Paul means by Christ emptying himself, not by divesting himself of his divine attributes. Jesus didn't cease to be God. He emptied himself by taking on these things. And so first, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Here the word form has the same sense as in verse 6, where form signifies appearance and being. So when Christ took the form of a servant, he adopted the appearance and being of a slave. Christ didn't exchange the form of God for the form of a slave. Rather, what he did is he manifested the form of God in the form of a slave. This is dramatically seen in John chapter 13. When Jesus stripped off his outer garment and he puts on the towel of a slave around his waist and bends down on his hands and knees and washes the disciples' dirty feet. Secondly, then Jesus emptied himself by being born in the likeness of men, which describes his full identity with the human race. He fully participated in the human experience like you and I do. He was not a facsimile. Those who saw him saw him as a man, fully man, and yet fully God. What an incomprehensible truth, but a truth that makes this downward spiral even more awe-inspiring. So we see his humility in heaven, in his incarnation. And the third downward spiral is seen in verse 8, where we see Jesus' humility in death. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice from the verse that as a real man, he humbled himself. No one humbled Jesus. It was, in fact, his doing. It puts the humility of Jesus in an altogether different category. All that was done to Jesus in his death he 100% allowed. And of course he could have stopped it. He had thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angelic beings at his fingertips, at his beck and call to stop the thing from happening. And yet he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. It was not the religious leaders It was not Herod. It was not Pilate. It was not the Roman soldiers who humbled him. He humbled himself. But he humbled himself not just to any kind of death. Paul says at the end of verse 8 that it was death on a cross. 
There was no form of death that is, that is as degrading and gruesome as being crucified. Jesus did not die a peaceful, quiet death. He humbled himself by experiencing the most humiliating kind of death known to mankind. And when he's doing this, the Bible tells us that he became sin for us. And he averted the wrath of God and, and took the full cup of God's wrath in our place. What amazing humility that we see in Jesus. This downward spiral is seen in heaven when he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And the incarnation when he made himself nothing and took the form of a servant and seen in his death when he humbled himself, himself by dying a death that he did not deserve to die. What does Paul make of all this? What does he make of this kind of this downward spiral? Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The gospel-centered community is modeled after the humility of of Jesus. In John chapter 13, when Jesus finished washing the disciples' feet, he puts back on his outer garment and sits back down with the disciples and says to them these words, I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. The humility of Christ provides fuel for Christian humility in community. You see, if the Lord of all creation, if the hero can become a zero, then who am I and who are you to think that we are above counting each other more significant than ourselves? Who are you and I to think that we should not look to one another's interests as well as our own? You see, when the gospel is active in our community, pride and conceit and selfishness must quickly disappear But what replaces it is a relational culture that is full of people who are eager to serve one another, eager to put each other before themselves, eager to count each other more significant. We want to do this. When we see with fresh eyes what God has done for us in Christ, everything changes. Who can look at the humility of Jesus and be unaffected by it? The hero has become a zero and provides the ultimate premier model of humility. But that's not all because Paul doesn't stop there, does he? There's more to the story. In verses 9 to 11, we see the exaltation of Jesus as the zero of verse 8 is exalted as the superhero. The downward spiral of 6 to 8 has kind of coiled down into this intense spring that is ready to just explode in verses 9 to 11. And so look at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Paul pulls out all the stops using a word that is found nowhere else in the New Testament as he says that God has super exalted him, highly exalted him. 
after Christ gloriously resurrected from the dead and accomplished his rescue mission and he ascends back to heaven, he receives the highest exaltation possible from God, which is done by giving him a name that is above every single name. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says that this Jesus is Lord. He is Yahweh. And so the name that's given to Jesus that is above every name is the name of God which fills the Old Testament and points to Jesus' superiority and dynamic rule over all things, seen and unseen. In verses 10 and 11, we see the scope of Jesus' superiority and the scope of his rule when he writes this. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The scope and force of this declaration comes from Isaiah chapter 45. You can turn over to Isaiah 45 if you wish, or you can look at it later on today. But in Isaiah 45, we see Yahweh's declaration that all will worship him, and that at the name of Yahweh, every knee will bow, and every tongue swear allegiance. Four times in Isaiah 45, the Lord declares his absolute sovereignty. Three times in that chapter, he says, I am Lord and there is no other. And in verses 22 and 23 of Isaiah 45, we see Yahweh's call for utter allegiance. And so what Paul does is he uses those words in Isaiah 45 and applies them to Jesus. It's the most forceful statement of God's sovereign rule in history and salvation. And he connects it to Jesus and says, this Jesus is the Lord, Yahweh. I would encourage you later on today to read through Isaiah 45 and just meditate on how amazing it is that those words are applied to Jesus. He's the sovereign God of both the New and Old Testament And Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And heaven signifies angelic beings. On the earth refers to human beings and under the earth refers to the demonic. No knee in the universe will be excluded from bowing down. Some will bow down with exhilaration and joy while others will do it with shame and sadness. But no one is excluded from this physical representation of of the knee bowing. Regardless of your spiritual state or, or how proud you may be, you will bow your knee to Jesus. The only question is when? When will you do this? Paul also says that the counterpart to this physical physical expression of bowing the knee will be a, a verbal expression. That Jesus is Lord. So he says every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Soon, every tongue of every rational being in all of creation will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every believing heart will cry it at the top of its lungs in voice and song with the angels. Every unbelieving heart will confess it too. But they will do it with dismal submission and despair. The vilest and most wicked human being will do it. 
Satan will do it. His knee and his tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. What are we to make of these astonishing truths? Why does Paul kind of launch into this incredible, magnificent explanation of Christ right here in the command to the Philippians that they're supposed to be gospel-centered? Why now? Why here? Because what we believe about Jesus Christ determines the way that we live. Do you believe 6 to 11? If the answer is yes, then these are the truths that should determine our relational culture together. It should determine what your marriage looks like, what your parenting looks like, what your friendships looks like, what the relational culture of this church looks like, how our boards and committees interact with one another, how decisions are made. Do you really count others as more significant than yourselves? Do you really look out for the interests of others? The answer to these questions is directly related to what we understand about Christ and what we believe that He did for us. On our own, we will never be able to do this. But what we see is that Jesus did it perfectly. The perfect, humble man who lived out these attitudes and behaviors perfectly. And when we are in him and when he is in us, we are then enabled and equipped and empowered to live this way. This is not just a try harder sermon. It's a trust in Jesus more. Look to him to do these things in us. So the gospel-centered community requires unity and humility, and it requires us to model our life together after Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what magnificent verses you have given to us in Philippians chapter 2. And we see you, Jesus, in all of your glory. Although dimly, we see your glory. And we pray that our lives would be shaped by these truths. Help us to repent of areas of our life where we are being prideful and conceited and selfish. Help us to live humble lives, pursuing unity with one another. For these things, we need your help. We need your grace. And I pray, Father, that every person here would bow their knee and confess with their tongue that you are their Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.